0: When I was in college, I was in the the jazz band at Truett McConnell College, and we were on our way to one of our little concerts, one of our little gigs, and we were in a van all together, and the head of the music department was driving us there, his name was Dr. Calloway, and he was a really great guy, really nice guy, really even-tempered guy. And as we were driving, it's in North Georgia, all these curvy little back roads, and it's, people in North Georgia don't drive well anyway. Everyone's very aggressive for the kind of roads that exist up there. And there was a guy on our tail in his car, and he was just up our tailpipe, you know what I mean? Just, just scratching the paint off the bumper almost, he was so close, and he was weaving back and forth. And you could watch Dr. Calloway's face in the rearview mirror, and he was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. And again, this is a really even-tempered guy, so we were all really uncomfortable with the shade of red that his face was turning. And the longer it happened, the angrier and angrier he got, until finally something happened where the car behind us swerved suddenly, drove off the road, in through a ditch, and out into the middle of a pasture. And the look of anger on Dr. Calloway's face faded. And it was replaced by one of the most joyous expressions I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen, like, my wife after our children were born, and I don't think that captured the joy that Dr. Calloway had. You could have told this man that he won $10 million, and it wouldn't have brought him that much joy as seeing this guy run his pretty little car off into the middle of a pasture. Whether we want to admit it or not, there's something cathartic and something... That makes us a little happy when we see people get what we think they deserve. And if you you read a book, if you watch a TV show, if you watch a movie, and you see a character that's constantly causing harm, that's a liar, that's a cheat, that's doing things wrong, and then it comes to this head where they finally get what's coming to them, it's a really good feeling for us. And part of that is because we're thinking, see, if you hadn't been like that, this wouldn't have happened to you. But I wonder if somewhere deep inside, what we're really saying is, see, if you were more like me, then that wouldn't happen to you. My car's not off in the pasture because I'm driving like I should. I'm not having this bad thing happen because I'm not doing all the things that you're doing. And so it gives us this sense of self-righteousness. It gives us this sense of, of a higher level of morality and comfort with ourselves. And when we read a book like Jonah... There is a really dangerous threat to read Jonah from a moral high ground, to look at the story of Jonah and watch, because from the very beginning, this passage that we're going to look at today, the first three verses, right off the bat, Jonah runs away from God. And when you see a book start with that kind of mindset and you see this person immediately in sin and rebellion, it can be easy to start reading this book from above, they we're looking down on Jonah and we're watching his mistakes and we're seeing what he's doing so we can wag our finger and say, shame on you. But the reality is Jonah's rebellion is about Jonah and his rebellion. But as we've seen, he's also this representative of all of Israel at this time and their sin and their running away from God. But Jonah's story is also a reflection of our own story. Because no matter who we are, no matter who we think we are, no matter what we think we've done, every single one of us at some point in time have found ourselves in a similar situation to Jonah's, running away from God in the midst of pride and in the midst of rebellion. And so as we begin this story, we're going to start talking about Jonah's flaws, but let's, not, let's be very careful not to read the story from up here on our tower, but to read it where Jonah is and to recognize our own vulnerabilities to fall into the same pattern and to to look at this as a warning about what could be growing up inside of us as we see Jonah who is this prophet who's running away. And so our text is from Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And this is what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do, as always, thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that in stories like these, when we are able to, to take ourselves out of a position of judgment and authority, we realize that these are stories that remind us that we aren't alone, because Jonah is not alone in his rebellion, and so when we're running and when we're in our rebellion, we're not alone either, that there is room in your grace and mercy for prophets who run away, and for your people who don't live like we should so very often. And so as we talk about this incredible story and all of the things that it entails, God, help us to not only see Jonah, help us to not only see Israel and Nineveh, God, but help us to see ourselves in this story. And most importantly, help us to know where to look for Jesus in this story, as we're reminded that even in the midst of of the greatest rebellion and the, the deepest fears, that Christ is good enough, that Christ is gracious enough, that Christ is merciful enough to save even the rebellious among us, even the rebellions within us. And so, God, we do ask that you bless this word and that you speak to us through it this morning. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Right off the bat, the story of Jonah begins with a miracle. And we've talked about the, the miraculous and spectacular nature of this book already. But from the very beginning, from the very opening lines, the book begins with this incredible miracle, but it's not a fish. In verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Last week, we talked about the incredible beauty of a God who speaks of a God who is so big and so transcendent and so awesome that he could speak the universe into being and that he could hold the universe in motion with the power of his word. But even though he is so big and so awesome and so wonderful, he still uses a gentle voice to be able to speak to us in a way that we could understand. This is an incredibly miraculous introduction where the God who created the universe speaks to this one guy. He meets Jonah on a personal level, in a way that Jonah could understand, in a way that Jonah could relate to, and it's awe-inspiring. But it's a really quick verse, and so it's something that can get lost in the big narrative of what's taking place in the book of Jonah. And so it's really important that we stop and we think about how amazing and how awesome this really is. That we have a God who loves us enough that he is intimately connected with us. A God who is not out there to be found, but a God who comes to us and a God who finds us. A God that we don't have to go out and pursue, but a God who first pursued us. And a God that we don't have to figure out, but a God who has revealed himself to us in so many different ways. Whether it's speaking directly like he does here to Jonah or as the writer of Hebrews says, that he spoke at once through the law and the prophets, but then he spoke fully through Christ. That he revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus who reveals the character and the nature of God to the world. And he speaks to us even now through his word. When we say week after week after the, the passage of scripture is read, when we say thanks be to God for his word, we really should be thankful. We should really be incredibly aware of how important and amazing it is that we have the word of God given to us in a way that we can understand it in a way that we can know it, so that we can know that God who gives it to us. It's an unbelievable miracle that we can't let slip by. See, we talked about how stories like Jonah are stories that can become very familiar. If you've heard them your whole life, or at least you've heard the idea of these stories a lot, we can become very familiar and take these stories for granted. And in the same way, we can just take God's word for granted in general but we can also become very familiar with God. You see, growing up in the South, there's a good chance that you know a lot of things about God. We grow up hearing about God, and so you, you hear the phrase God's word a lot. And you hear people talk about God speaking to them and all these kind of things. And so we get very used to the fact that God is a God who speaks. And so we see this passage and we say, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we go, okay, God is a God that talks. I know that. I'm familiar with that idea. But it's so much deeper and so much more beautiful than we could ever fathom or understand that this God speaks to his people, that he loves us, that he meets with us, that he doesn't just abandon us, but he is there with us in every moment and everything that we do. And so we have to be very careful to never lose the wonder To never lose the amazement, to never lose the excitement, that as we worship God, as we sing songs, as we do all the things that we do, that we should constantly be in awe of the fact that not only can we speak to God, but that God speaks to us and he loves us that much to do so in a gentle way. Because if his word has the power to create the universe, if his word has the power to create everything in existence, then he has the power to speak us out of existence. We don't have the capacity to handle that kind of word, and yet God speaks to us so gently and so kindly that we can not only understand it, but that we can know him through it. And so just like there's going to be so many warnings as we go through the book of Jonah, and so many things that we should be very cautious about, There are also so many things that should drive us to a deeper and more intimate worship of God. And this is one of those things. The biggest miracle in this book is the fact that God loves us enough that he speaks to us. And so he speaks to Jonah. And he comes to Jonah, this prophet, and he gives Jonah his marching orders. He tells him what he's supposed to do. And he tells Jonah that he needs to go out and go to this place called Nineveh, this place that we've talked about, this Assyrian city. Away from Israel. And so he goes to Jonah, he says, Go out to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now we've already talked about the the full scope of the story. So there's no spoiler alerts. We know what happens in the story. God calls Jonah, Jonah runs away, there's a big fish, he gets spit up on some land, he finally goes to Nineveh, he wants Nineveh to be destroyed, and yet God saves Nineveh because they repent. But when God gives Jonah the instructions, it doesn't look like salvation is part of the plan. God doesn't come to Jonah. and He doesn't say, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh because they're sinful and I'm worried about them. And I want you to go tell them the things that they're doing are wrong so that I can save them and so that I can take care of them. He says, get up and go to Nineveh and speak against them. Call out against them because their evil has come up before me. And so it looks like God is sending Jonah to Nineveh, basically, to tell them that they're going to die. And when we look at Jonah's sermon later on in this book, all he does is go there and say, listen, in just a little while, God is going to destroy you. That's the message. That's the promise. That's what looks like is going to happen. But this is a really strange commandment, just in its very nature. Because as we've talked about over the past couple weeks, the Old Testament is very Israel-centric. It's very focused on the Hebrew people. They're either the center point of the story for the good or for the bad. The whole thing is wrapped up in these people that God has called out to bring salvation into the world. And so we don't really see a lot of God sending prophets to warn other nations. God would go to his prophets and he would tell them to go to his people. And so he would send prophets to Israel, he would send prophets to Judah, and they would go out to the people of God, to the Hebrew people, and they would take God's message to his people. But now God is taking a Hebrew prophet, one of his prophets, and he's saying, I want you to leave town. I want you to leave Israel, I want you to go out into Nineveh and call out against them. We've seen something like this before, when God went to Abraham, God called Abraham to go to this promised land. He says, I've got this incredible place carved out just for you, but you can't have it yet. It's not quite time. I'm going to give it to your descendants in about 400 years. And he said the reason was that the Canaanite people that lived there, he said their sin wasn't full yet, that they hadn't sinned enough yet. But one day they would. And when their sin was complete, God was going to send his people into Canaan to bring judgment on them and at the same time give his people this promised land. But he didn't send Abraham to Canaan to warn them. He didn't send a group of people out to Canaan to warn them. The only people that went into Canaan were there either to spy out the land in secret or to go and take the land. And so this is a really unique thing that God is doing by sending Jonah to Nineveh to even give the people warning that their sin has caused God to be angry. Because as we've seen before, it's usually just 400 years and then a silent shutdown before the people really know what's going on. And so Nineveh has some sort of a a blessing here that Jonah would be sent there to prophesy and to give them this heads up and to give them this warning. And as readers of this passage of scripture now, looking back over thousands of years on the other side of the New Testament, we see this in light of Christ. And we see that something is changing in this Old Testament story, in this Old Testament narrative, and it's a quiet whisper of the changing winds of redemption. We see now that God's word is leaving his camp and it's going out into the nations. And while this doesn't appear to be good news for the Ninevites, it's good news for the world. Because this is one of these first whispers that God has a plan that's bigger than the nation of Israel. That God has a plan that's bigger than this one group of people. That God has a plan to save the world. That God has a plan to save all people of all nations, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. And he starts with this one simple story. These four short chapters where God tells one prophet to go to one city. And as Drew said, this is a sign that something better is coming. That one day there would be a better Jonah who takes the message of God's salvation out into the entire world. But right now he just starts with this one little whisper as he goes and speaks to the prophet and sends him out into this new place. And so now Jonah's set up for a triumphant moment. Jonah has an opportunity for this to be one of those heroic stories inside of Scripture. Like when God called Abraham, we talk about that one really well. That's mentioned several times in the New Testament. That is a triumphant moment for Abraham because God comes to Abraham, who's lived in his father's tent full of pagan idols his whole life, who's never left home. And he comes to Abraham, he says, get up, I've got a place for you. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but you'll know it when you get there. And so I want you to get up and leave. And Abraham got up and he walked. And it's this amazing story of faith. And the New Testament says that that faith that Abraham had to be able to stand up and go was counted to him as righteousness. And we see this example of Abraham's faith, and it's something that we, we just we celebrate. We also see Jesus as we're in the season of Lent. As we talk about this story of Jesus going into the wilderness, we have the beautiful setting where Jesus is baptized And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it's so beautiful. And Jesus comes out of the water, and immediately we're told that the Spirit, that God calls him out into the wilderness, into this place that is desolate and horrible and awful to the point where people would walk extra miles to get around this wilderness place. Jesus walks right into it, knowing that Satan himself would be there waiting to tempt Jesus. That he would have to fast, that he would have to pray, and that he would have to deal with this temptation. And yet Jesus, when called by the Spirit to go into the wilderness, he didn't hesitate, he didn't fall back, he didn't doubt, he just stood up and walked. And this is Jonah's moment for that. God says, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh and tell them this thing that I have for him. And Jonah could have stood up and he could have walked. And now we would be celebrating Jonah's faith to go into this foreign land, to go into this pagan place and tell them about who God really is. And we would celebrate Jonah. But Jonah gets up after hearing God's call and he starts walking with passion, and with fervor, and with zeal, the complete opposite direction. Nineveh's over here, and Jonah gets up, and he gets on a boat heading to Tarshish, which is over here. Not quite the triumphant moment that Jonah could have had. It says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is a man who has the same fervor and the same passion as Abraham and Jesus, just not in the same direction. Instead of faithfully running into the call of God, he stands up and he doesn't just walk away, he flees. He runs away from the presence of God. He runs away from God's calling on his life. And here's the deal. God called prophets to do a lot of weird things. God called a prophet to eat a scroll. God called a prophet to lay on his side for a really long time to prove some kind of a point. God called one prophet to marry a prostitute. And so in light of all of those things, God coming to Jonah and saying, go to Nineveh, it seems like Jonah got a pretty sweet deal. It could have been a lot worse for a prophet. And so when we read the story right off the bat, we just think, Jonah, you dummy, just go to Nineveh. It could be a lot worse. God is with you. God is going to protect you. God's going to take care of you. He's calling you to do this awesome thing. So just get up and and go to Nineveh. But if you think about it, especially talking about the setting that we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's some really good reasons for Jonah to avoid going to Nineveh. For starter, just the, the cultural context that both of these places are in are very different. Remember, Israel is in a time, even though they're spiritually not where they should be, even though they're sinning and not worshiping God as they should, things are going really well for Israel. They're financially prosperous. They're expanding their boundaries. They're starting to feel more and more like a kingdom again. It feels like they're getting back to the good old days of David and Solomon. And so everything is going really well in the life of Israel. But Assyria, where Nineveh is, is in turmoil. They're fighting wars on two fronts. There is widespread famine. Everything is decentralized and fragmented. There's civil war taking place. All of these cities are trying to gain power for themselves. And so God is asking Jonah to leave a comfortable, prosperous, good situation and head into something that is dangerous and that is empty, that's full of famine. He might not even know how to eat when he gets there. And so it makes sense that Jonah wouldn't want to go into Nineveh. But also think about Jonah's position himself. God is asking Jonah to go from being a prosperity prophet to a prophet of doom. He's asking Jonah to go from being a prophet who has said nothing but good things to Israel to go into this foreign land and start telling them that God is going to wipe them out. And remember a couple weeks ago, when we looked at second Kings 14, the first time we see Jonah pop up, it's Jonah prophesying to Israel that God is going to increase their boundaries, that God is going to increase their borders. And so Jonah comes onto the scene telling everybody, Hey, listen, it's no big deal about our sin. It's no big deal about all the stuff that's going on. God is going to take care of us and God is going to grow us. And so sure enough, that starts to happen. Even in the midst of their sin, they start to have all of this incredible progress. And so Jonah was probably a pretty popular guy. If you go out telling everybody things are about to go really well and everything's going to be really good and things start going really well and everything's really good, then people start looking at you saying, that Jonah, him and his smile and his passion and his fervor, that guy prophesied that God was going to provide for us and God did provide for us. And so they all probably really liked Jonah. But doomsday prophets tend to not be so well received. It's not quite as easy to look somebody in the face and thank them for coming when they say, God's going to kill you and your sin is terrible and you should change. No one wants to hear that. No one's excited about hearing that. And that's what God is asking Jonah to do. He wants Jonah to go from a place where he's a hero to a place that he might not come home from. Because Jonah knows that even in Israel, that when you were a doomsday kind of prophet, when you said things that people don't like, it didn't go well for you. And a lot of times you could even be killed. And that was in his own hometown. That was in his own place. That was amongst the Hebrew people. And so now God is sending him out into this foreign land, this pagan land, to tell them that their sin has been offensive to God. And so it's almost a guarantee that he's not going to come home because they're going to be so angry and so just distraught with his message that he's not going to be very well received. And so he's not just giving up his reputation, but he's also probably giving up his life. But then finally, we see that as we look at the big story, that the Ninevite people, they were pagan people, and they were strangers. And from what we see in Jonah's life, he seemed to really hate them. The greatest sadness in Jonah's life in this story is that God doesn't destroy Nineveh. He wanted God to wipe this place from the face of the earth and he didn't care who had to die to see it happen. Jonah had a deep hatred for these people because they were other and they were different and he was only concerned with the people that he was around and the people that he liked. And so Jonah had a laundry list of reasons why people wouldn't or why he wouldn't want to go to Nineveh even to preach a message of destruction And so in light of all of that, Jonah promptly got up and he ran in the opposite direction. He rose with the intention to run. And there's a really interesting way that this is worded. Because in verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And said he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid a fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And those phrases, when it says went down and that he went on board, these were ancient euphemisms for death. And so we have our own euphemisms. So we talk about somebody passing away or someone passing on, because sometimes it can sound really harsh to say that somebody died or somebody killed over. And so we like to soften it a little bit. So say, oh, well, John, John passed away last night. And so in the same way, in the ancient world, they would say that John, John went down last night. John went on board last night. And so when we see that repeated twice, we see that every step that Jonah takes, every move that Jonah makes as he runs from the presence of the Lord is one step closer to death. Both literally and metaphorically, because we see Jonah get cast off, the not to, again, not to spoil next week's sermon, but we see Jonah get thrown overboard next week in the middle of a storm. And so his life is, is very close to ending several times in the story. But also, he's going further and further away from the one who gives him life spiritually. He's running into spiritual death with every step that he takes away from the presence of the Lord. It also continues on to say that he paid a fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And that seems like a really strange tidbit to put in there. That's a really weird detail that he paid a fare to go on this boat. We don't see any thought process from Jonah. We don't see any introspection here where we get to see inside of why Jonah's running away. He doesn't have any kind of argument with God. He just gets up and runs, and that's fairly loose on the details. But the writer of this book tells us that he paid a fare to get on this boat. And there's just something really desperate feeling about the fact that they include that he paid money to run away. That he didn't just hop on a boat. He didn't just try to take a trip. He didn't just try to take a vacation. That he was not only willing to uproot his life to run away, but he was willing to spend his own money to get away from this calling that God had given them. He was so desperate to run that there was no cost too great to get him away from the presence of God. And while Jonah got on a boat to Tarshish, that wasn't really his destination. Tarshish could have been replaced by any other city that was in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And I wish it was because then I wouldn't have to say Tarshish so many times in one sermon because that shishish just gets really stuck in your mouth. And the more I say it, the more unflattering it feels in my own mouth. And so it would have been much better if he went to, you know, Loganville, because I could say that one, but he didn't. He went to Tarshish, but it could have been anywhere else. It could have been Rome. It could have been Greece. It could have been any other city that happened to be as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly get. It didn't matter because the only place that Jonah wanted to be was out of the presence of God. Two times in the first three verses, it says that Jonah ran away from the presence of God, that he wanted so desperately not to just escape God's calling, but to escape God's presence altogether. And you would think that a prophet would have better theology. You would think that a prophet would have a better understanding of who God was. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, you see verses like Jeremiah twenty-three, twenty-four says, can a man hide himself in the hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. First Kings 8.27 says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And it goes on and on and on. And this isn't an understanding of God that developed over time. Even in Genesis chapter 1, we see this formless, dark, empty world before God begins to create. And it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. From the very beginning, God was omnipresent. God was everywhere that he needed to be at once. In Genesis chapter three, we see the first people trying to run from God. As Adam and Eve hide after their sin, and even then, as God humors them, saying, "Where are you guys?" He knows. His eyes are everywhere. He sees everywhere. His presence is everywhere. But Jonah is this archetype for for what's going on in Israel. They've fallen so far from where they used to be as people who were worshiping and honoring God. Their sin had become so great, and they were worshiping all these other deities and all these other gods that they had all but forgotten about who God was. Even in Judah, the southern kingdom, where you had some kings that were good and some kings that were bad, one of the most striking stories about what happens in Judah is when King Josiah is presented with this scroll that they find just in the dust in the temple. That hadn't been read in so long that when this king of Israel read it for the first time, it was the first time he had heard the word of God and he was broken and repentant. But that's how far the people had fallen. That's how disconnected they were from their understanding of who God was. And so it makes perfect sense that that's how far Jonah had fallen too. That he thought that there was any chance that he could possibly run away from the God who sees all things and knows all things. But that's not how God works. How do you outrun the sky? How do you outrun your own shadow? These are things that are everywhere you go and they're completely inescapable. And yet it would be easier to outrun the sky or to lose your own shadow than it would ever be to run away from the presence of God. And Jonah is about to find this out. Jonah is about to understand that there's no boat that he can get on that there's no depth that he could fall to, there's no place that he could run that would ever escape the presence of God because long before Jonah even had the intention to run to Tarshish, God was waiting on him on the boat there. God knew exactly what he was going to do, and God had measured the circumstances and put every piece in detail so that everywhere Jonah went, not only was he in the presence of God, but he was doing the will of God. And so Jonah's going to find this out, but for right now, he's just so desperate to escape. But while, again, we can sit and judge Jonah, we can look down at Jonah and say, silly Jonah, there's nowhere that you can go, man. There's nowhere that you can run. There's nowhere that you can escape God. The reality is that each and every one of us at some point in our lives have probably found ourselves trying to run away from God. We found ourselves trying to escape God and hide from God like Adam and Eve in the bushes. Even though in the depths of who we are, we probably know we can't escape the presence of God. There's so many times where we want to, where we want to crawl away, where we want to run away, where we want to find a place where God can't see us and God can't reach us because we just don't want to deal with what he's calling us to do. Or we feel so overwhelmed or lost in our sin and our shame that we just want to hide from God. And there's a twofold nature to God's omnipresence. On one hand, it's, it's scary and overwhelming because there isn't a place for us to run. The writer of Hebrews says that, that God splits us open and lays us naked and sees down to the depths of who we are, to the place where, where bone and marrow meet, that there is no part, not just of our lives and our actions, but there's no part of ourselves that God doesn't know deeply and intimately, and he knew those things long before we were even born, And so there's an overwhelming nature of that, that that I can't get away and I can't escape and I can't run. But there's also a beautiful comfort to that too, because it doesn't matter how deep I try to go. It doesn't matter how far I try to run. It doesn't matter how, how big my sins feel and how deep I feel buried in my sin and my shame and my guilt. There is no place, even of my creation, that God can't reach with his compassion and his love and his mercy and his kindness and pull me out. You see, there's a good chance that Jonah thought that God's mercy couldn't reach to Nineveh. They were probably pretty nationalistic. They felt really good about being God's chosen people and yet God reached out into Nineveh and then one day we see through Christ God reach out into the darkest places of the world into the depths of who we are and with his grace and mercy through the sacrifice of Christ call us out of those things. That he reaches down and he gets his hands dirty for us. And so while it should cause us a little bit of distress that we can't run away from God, it should also be very comforting that we can't run away from God. Because you hear that so often. I can't go to church. Who do you, who, if you knew who I was, how could I ever walk in the doors of the church? God wants nothing to do with me because you just, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. God could never save somebody like me. God could never reach somebody like me. But before we reached those depths, God was there. Before the foundations of the earth, before Adam and Eve fell in the garden, before any sins or shame that we've put on ourselves, God was there. And he had a plan to restore us and to redeem us and to save us. And the book of Jonah reminds us of that truth. Because as Jonah tries to run away from the presence of God, he can never escape. And while that may feel suffocating at first, it's also very liberating because it reminds us that it's not about me and my abilities, but it's about the God who can reach to Nineveh and beyond to save whomever he chooses to save. And it's this beautiful, unbelievable thing that God just wraps us up in his grace and mercy. That it's not about me, that it's not about my shame, that it's not about my sin, but it's about the God who has a plan to save the world and who sends us out to all corners of the world because that's how far he can reach. And so it's beautiful and it's comforting and it's a little overwhelming. Jonah's not here to make us feel better, but he's here to hand us a mirror. He's here to let us look into our lives and see the places where we run in the way that Jonah runs we have to ask ourselves the question how often do I how often do we run to the calls that God gives us that we love and that we're passionate about and that we want to be a part of and then flee the things that are less appealing how often does our theology that our knowledge of who God is fail when God's plans begin to look distinctly different from ours As we look at this passage, we need to be praying that God would allow us to see less of Jonah in our lives and more of Christ. Because Christ, as he was called out into the desolation, he got up and he went even though Satan was waiting for him there, and even though Satan offered him all that he could have ever wanted, he stayed true to his calling because he knew that the eternal beauty and the eternal joy that comes with God's calling was better than any fleeting comfort or status that he could ever have. And so let's worship the God who is all-present and ever-present who not only speaks to us, but a God who saves us and calls us, even no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, a God who loves us unconditionally. And in that calling that God gives us, let's not find fear, but let's find joy. Let's look at the whole story of Jonah and realize the beauty of what God was doing there and how Jonah could have been so passionately and actively a part of seeing an entire city of people who had never worshiped God before repent of their sins and turn away and be saved from destruction. Jonah could have taken part in that and enjoyed it and loved it and seen the beauty of it, but instead because of his own pride, because of his own self-righteousness, because of his own rebellion saw God work in this incredible way and only found misery in it. God is calling us individually and as a church to see lives change, to see eternity shaped, to see our community renewed and restored. And he's going to use us, whether we like it or not, but we should like it. Because the God who is everywhere, who knows all things, who is powerful to do all things, wants us to know that this is exactly who we're supposed to be and who we're called to be and to find joy in the things that he's calling us to do. And so let's look at Jonah as a warning. Let's see Jonah in our lives where we need to and let's turn away from that so that we can see the full beauty of Christ working in our lives in every moment and every day and remember that as he calls us, he also equips us and as he equips us, he restores us and renews us and makes us daily into who we are supposed to be as we follow his calling and so we we aren't held back by our sin, we aren't held back by our shame or our guilt but we can run fully into the calling that God has given us.